I wouldn't say they're beating my stocks, but, but they're the, worth more money than your stock. Picks. Yes, but they, but they yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say they're beating my stock so much as I would say that their performance is uh, is better. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Legitimately, how are you? Uh, fine. I mean, I feel like I put so much effort into the question <laughs> and your answer. All right, I don't need to like air my business in front of the podcast listeners. I'm good. How about you? Speaking of speaking of airing your business, I would like all of you to air your business. Go ahead and rate and review the podcast. Air your business to us. How do you feel about our air our business? Maybe yeah, air our business. Uh, let us know how we doing. And then Skippy Doog that junk. Skippy Doogles at gmail dot com. Skippy Doogles it. <laughs> This is I hope be... uh, Skippy Dig That Junk never catches on. I hope that's not a hashtag or anything. <laughs> no good. Hey, baby, I got a Skippy Dig That Junk. <laughs> anyway, so this is going to be one of those episodes, uh, you, you've, you've crushed a couple of these before, where there's so many quick hits. So I think we might get into one or, two, ground. Yeah. Yeah, one, one or two pieces of, of, of meat, but otherwise, it's going to be quick hittles, like them Skittles. So... Let's start off with the meat, though. Is that cool? Yeah. Like Arby's? So there we was this piece. the meats. Exactly. There was this piece in, uh, it was a Substack Investment Management Insights, and it talked about the Graham and Dodd annual breakfast. Let me actually... jump in. I don't, I'm not going to interrupt anymore, but I'm going to interrupt right here. When Dougal's is sending me investing articles written at the Graham and Dodd annual breakfast of 2022 that's when you know that i've won this is like the pinnacle of value investing commentary and you're all up in it yeah that's not untrue that's not untrue because also this year your your choices at the beginning of the year are screaming off the chisels Mm -hmm. screaming off the chisels a little bit I wouldn't say they're beating my stocks, but, but they're the, worth more money than your stock. Picks. Yes, but, the, but they are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say I wouldn't say they're beating my stock so much as I would say that their performance is uh, is better. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, do you know more uh, detail about this? Because I don't know a lot about this. But what, what I do know is that uh, Michael Mobison is, is involved in all these uh, Graham and Dodd breakfasts and whatnot. And he's always interviewing people and he says smart things. That's what I know about it. Yeah. I mean, so he teaches at Columbia Business School, a really famous course. And then the, all the Graham and Dodd stuff is a huge arm of the value investing community. Uh, folks like Bill Miller and and countless others are heavily involved. So it's yeah. a whole thing. Yeah. So just repeating what I said. So yeah, that's right. The, <laughs> so here we had Michael Mopson and he's interviewing Todd Combs, who is the CEO of Geico. But he's the CEO of Geico because he works for Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, he's been there, you know, for a clip clip. And he's an investor, right? Berkshire Hathaway investor. And by an investor, I mean, he's kind of a big deal, right? Like the, the, this dude uh, on Surdy's goes to Buffett's house, talks to him, 
they they chitty chat about like how do you invest what's important here and that's a bunch of what we're going to talk about because it's kind of cool um i'm vastly underplaying who, who todd combs is um but it's like it's fascinating for him to answer questions like when you and buffett or you and charlie munger talk what are the questions you ask how do you analyze one of the things i loved we're, we're not going to get into some of this here today one of the things i loved about this piece is that there were some things where he was just like I don't know. I don't think about that. Yeah. It's super cool. I always find when you meet people who are deep experts on something and you ask them about a thing that they don't care about, they say, I don't know. I don't care. When you meet somebody who's not necessarily an expert and what they're there to do is to talk to you and to get on the public airwaves and you ask them about something they don't, they don't know about, they tell you about it. <laughs> and I like, I really, I think that difference is, uh, is really, really important. Anyway, let's get into this. Uh, one of the questions I was asked was when you go up to Buffett's place, when you talk to Charlie Munger, what are the uh, what are the items or the elements of a stock that you looked for? And one of the things that he said that they ask a question they ask when looking for stocks is what percentage of S&P 500 businesses would be a better business in five years? I saw this question and went, my, my, my mind was blown, Skippy. You know, you know my answer? Zero. No, nah, I, I have no idea. I honestly have no idea. This is, it would require so much thought and it's it's a way, like it's framed in a way that I don't think about that. One, it requires pretty solid knowledge of the 500-ish companies that are in the S&P 500, which I don't have. Like I have a much narrower focus than that. Two, I think most investors always think of like, what will a price be? How how different will the price be in five years? Well, that's an entirely different question than how many stocks. And we're getting there. Yeah, right? Yeah. And what will the price be varies a lot on what Apple and Microsoft and Google and Tesla do. Like how many stocks will be better could be, 20 stocks could be better. They could be smaller cap stocks. And the price could be drastically down because your large caps. Are, it's it's crazy. I don't. I just, I just never thought yeah. about it that way. Yeah, and you're you're definitely right. And one of the uh, the assumptions that has to go into asking this question is that you are investing in a business, as you always say. If you're buying a stock, you're investing in a business, right? You're buying a part of a business, and you have to think about something long term. Those are two assumptions if you're asking this question in the first place. And so he says he's sitting with Charlie Munger. And this question comes up, what percentage of S&P 500 companies are going to be a better business in five years? So you have to think ahead and go, today, they might be like pimp, shrimp, and scrimp. But in five years, they might be junk in the trunk. And well, that's also good. Hold on. Anyway, some other <laughs> kind of junk. <laughs> but the he said, so in his mind, when he, when he got first got asked this, he was like, I don't know, like 5%. Right. He didn't say, I don't know. He just said 5%. So Charlie Munger was like, no, 2%. Just think about that, that number for a second. S&P 500. I know you're not good at math. That means they have 500 companies. S&P 500. It's not always 500. <laughs> that is true. That is true. 500 to 505. 500 companies. So if you're taking 2% of that, right, you're like, do that math right quick. You're basically talking about like between 2 to 5%. You're talking like 1 to 3 companies. That they are saying, if you take the S&P 500, one to three companies are probably going to be a better business in five years than they are today. So that's the first question. Then 
they asked the question of oh, actually this is another series that Warren asked. So let me skip to Warren for a second. How many names in the S and P are going to be fifteen times earnings in the next twelve months? That's about the the average of the uh, S and P five hundred PE ratio, like over time. If you're looking at twelve months, so one year, how many are going to be fifteen x? How many are going to earn more in five years at a ninety percent confidence interval? Right. So you have you have to be fifteen times earnings in the next twelve months. You're going to earn more, so have higher earnings in five years than you do today, and your stock can compound at 7% at a 50% confidence interval. Those are a few more questions. So if you take those three things in combination, you're talking about being able to grow. You're talking about valuation today. That's a 7%. A 7% isn't what they're going for, but if you take 7% compounded with a 15X, like this is these are brilliant questions, I think. I don't know. I'm nerding out here. Is this too nerdy? It's pretty nerdy, Diggles, which is uh, saying something coming from me. But here's the the heart of these questions, and I think there's more, is one reason why I fall more uh, in the Benjamin Graham camp than the Warren Buffett camp. And I'm not saying that Benjamin Graham is a better investor or anything along those lines. I'm saying I think Graham's methodology is something that um, is much easier to quantify and copy. Because you don't have to worry about what a company looks like in five years or 20 years necessarily. Like basically the heart of the matter, you're saying this thing's cheap, that mean reversion is going to happen. Investor psychology is going to happen. And Buffett and Munger have evolved to a point where they're so good at saying, yeah, but I want C's candy and I want great ROEs that can grow uh, without adding additional capital for 30 or 40 years. And those complexities, which are coming across in some of the questions you're talking about here, I think get really, really challenging to quantify co- correctly. That's right. I, I love that you brought that up because to your point, you don't you don't buy compounders, right? Me, but when I say compounders, I mean, you, you don't inherently, you may happen to buy compounders, but you don't buy businesses with the intent to hold them over a long period of time so that yeah. they compound, right? And, and and all the Berkshire crew, I mean, that's the maybe the number one criteria. Like, that's the ticket to admission. And I just say, I think that's a little too hard for me. I'm not that skilled. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm similar, right? I'm th- There's a difference between our two pur- uh, purchase methodologies where I don't sell and buy the you know new stuff every year, but also... There, I happen to have compounders because of my methodology, but it's not. But I'm also not saying in a decade, what can this one stock that I'm going to buy do necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. Just it happens to do it. It's fascinating when, to your point, it, it's so much more complex when you say, I'm going to buy an entire business. So therefore, or at least a vast majority. So therefore, I need to make sure like management's pimping. I'm going to make sure the price right now, pimping. And you know what? Pimping ain't easy. <laughs> Here's another oh point. <laughs> Here's another point I thought was was really interesting. Uh, they were talking to Todd Combs about what was the it was like if if you're gonna spend all your time doing something, right, with regard to a stock, like what would you study? Oversimplifying slash getting it wrong, what they asked him. Yeah. And 
He said he would spend 150% of his time. And by the way, Todd Combs, according to how he broke down the percentage of where he spends his time, uh, works about 230%. Yeah. <laughs> but he he uh, he said he would spend his t- 150% of his time on Delta reports. And so just think about that as when you're looking at uh, when you're looking at a business, how has it, how a business talks about itself change? That's it. Or how has the operations changed? Not what is it today, right? And he said he would look at Delta reports because when you look at how a business talks about itself, the change in how it talks about itself tells you about the integrity of its management. And when I say integrity, I don't just mean values. I mean like um, its commitment to even how it operates. Yeah, and I think the point there is, see if I could articulate this, but when you see management moving the goalposts, that Mm -hmm. tells you something about the way management thinks about their business or the way management is trying to potentially fool investors to make them sound good effectively. I I think there's a larger point when you say deltas. I think trends are incredibly important in all like financial strategy and investing. And this goes to a recent example in my portfolio, which is effectively a joke at this point. And that's Intel, right? And so Dougal's what a year and a half ago, you told me that <laughs> that you would run away from Intel as fast as you could. Intel has increased their dividends. I, I this is off the top of my head, something like twenty straight years, and they just did a massive cut. They just cut it by two thirds. That trend, Dougal's, of like saying this is a business where dividends are stable to increasing consistently for 20 years when you pull back significantly and it's not in a case like a global pandemic or a global financial crisis like what does that potentially tell you about that company and i think that's related to what um he's talking about here exactly and the one of the points that he brought up along those lines of trends was around how do you always talk about incentives right which is brilliant and how does management get incentivized to run the business? And one of these one of these points is around if you're changing the key performance indicators, right? So what are the, the metrics that you look at to judge your business? And when you change the key performance indicators as management and you change that in accordance with how you get compensated, then if you go from something that is core to something not core, or something nonsensical, then it's most likely because your business, you believe and you know your business is not going to be operating on that anymore. And I loved this. <laughs> Remember when I talked about EBITDA, right? <laughs> Which is, so EBITDA, uh, it's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation. I missed a letter in there. <laughs> Amortization. <Yeah. laughs> EBITDA. So EBITDA, right? E-B-I-T-D-A. And so this is, some people just like shorthand this and call it operating earnings, right? But it, what it's supposed to be is well, the amount. Okay, hold on. You're going you're gonna to get me fired up because in my real job, this stuff matters. It's not operating earnings. A lot of times it's close to operating earnings. Yeah. It's shorthand. It's operating earnings. But I hate EBITDA. EBITDA. I don't think anyone should ever talk about like it's stupid it's uh john malone made it up in the 1970s we could do a whole episode on this the fact that it even gets talked about as much as it should the fact that people think that like depreciation isn't a real expense for the business and that 
And small business valuations, most people do multiples of EBITDA just drives me insane. <laughs> but I think that's ultimately the point you're getting to because Berkshire Hathaway feels the same way about that metric. The question to Combs was, to your point, what is so bad about EBITDA? And he replied, yeah. you mean BS earnings? Yes. It's absent. <laughs> it's so awesome. And what he, so he starts talking about maintenance CapEx, right? So capital expenditures to maintain your business. And uh, he, it, this is, it's so powerful. He's saying that most CEOs don't have a good grasp on this. Like, what is the amount of money that it takes? To, I'm going to, this is not really what maintenance CapEx is, but I'm going to overextend it and just say, like, what is the cost of just running your operation? Let's just call it that. I know it's not that. Okay. I know it's not that. Okay. But what he's saying is most CEOs don't have a good sense on just what it costs to run your business day to day to run it. Now, maintenance CapEx has more to do with like running the or um, maintaining like the assets, let's call it, of your business, right? Like the the non-human assets of your business. And he's saying most management teams like aren't able to talk about that. And they're incentivized about growing the business. And so let me tell you about where we're investing to grow, right? Let me not let me not talk about like what we're what we're maintaining here. And he says, so then you have a SaaS company, a SaaS company, S-A-A-S, software as a service. Uh, so like Twilio is an example, right? It's a company where you produce software. And so most of your assets are intangible. Most of your yeah. assets are in intellectual property. They're not in like plants and whatnot, right? Like factories. When I say plants, I'm not talking about like lilies. And so when he, I know you'll probably know that, but it's still, but anyway, but he's, so what he's saying is um, when you have a SaaS company, you are like what your maintenance capex is is people and this goes back to a point that we've talked about before which is he didn't bring this up directly right but it's in stock-based compensation where you're saying that is your maintenance capex like people are your maintenance capex and so if you're not including that you can't like ignore that right if just because you're not capitalizing it quote unquote right what are you saying and so most but anyway going back to the main point most businesses don't know what it takes to just run the company. They're so focused on growing the company that they're in, like they they look at what you invest to grow the company, whether or not it's even growing, whether or not that's profitable, right? They're not looking at what does it take to run this organization. And a lot of what he's looking at is what is the core expense, right? That it takes to invest in your core infrastructure of the organization. And if you don't understand that, then you don't really understand your company. I think that's a powerful concept. Yeah, well, and this is why EBITDA is such a stupid metric, because in the simplest old school manufacturing sense, if you have to buy a $20 million facility every 20 years and you straight line depreciate that, you, you can't say you can't just exclude that cost and be like, oh, that yeah. million dollars a year that I know it costs to run my business because I have a finite resource that depreciates in value like that is the maintenance capex and a simple example here where if you just say, oh, but I look at earnings that excludes that, it artificially looks like you make a million bucks a year more than you yeah. actually make. And that's complete, like that's a real expense. Mm -hmm. It just, it doesn't matter if you write the $20 million check at one point and then don't have to think about it for 20 more years. It's still a real expense of the business. So I think we're in nerd land here, Diggles, and I think we should give the people what they want but i hear you loud and clear and this point is i wish more people would read this because the amount of people that talk about ebitda and think that it has some meaning is, is way greater than it should be 
that number should be zero. I agree with you and on giving the people what they want. Before we do that, I just yeah. one more thing, because I talked about Delta reports, and then I kind of yeah. went off on a tangent here. One of the things he said around Delta reports, so the change in talking about how you measure the goalposts, as you, as you mentioned, was he said when he looks at Fortune 500 companies, he estimates that 20% of them change their incentive metrics. Like when you look at that on an annual basis, 20%, do quick math, I'm going to call it about 100 of the Fortune 500 companies, change the way that they incentivize and measure their business on an annual basis. That is massive. It's not surprising to me. The majority of the companies I've worked with seem to do that, not necessarily on an annual basis, but at least every two to three years. Uh, and it was kind of flavor of the month, right? I think that's incredibly common. So we're going to put this on the Substack on Monday, this piece. 0% of you are going to read it because I've already told you it's like nerdville.com. We probably touched on about 15% of the entire piece. It's fascinating. As I mentioned at the beginning, he runs Geico and they got into like, how do you think about like um, allocating your time in Geico versus investing? What are the overlaps between uh, running a, a business and investing in a business? They it got into some really quote unquote fascinating. I think it's fascinating. Y'all may not, but I, like fascinating stuff here. So we're going to put in the sub stack. Go and read that. I love it. You know, my main takeaway was that I'm glad I have a job that only takes up 100% of my time. Because man, if I was if I was giving out two hundred and thirty percent of my time or whatever he did, I think I'd be pretty tired. Yeah, yeah you, you would be. <laughs> and it's, it's like no joke. They when they were asking him how he allocates his time, he started. They said, "How much time do you spend at Geico?" And he started with about one hundred and ten percent at Geico. Yeah, like, yeah, I know. It's like, well, I am the CEO, so like one hundred twenty percent, I think. And then and then I got to invest, and then I got the Berkshire thing, and I want to pick Buffett's here. <laughs> if he if he wasn't him. If, if I was talking to a random person and they started by saying, I spend 110% at this, I'd go, well, you just can't do good maths. So like from yeah, the like, get-go. If he wasn't incredibly numerate, uh, a gifted investor, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> you'd have a problem with the very first sentence there. Yeah. The, the last person that told me they spent 110% of something also said Vidya. So, <laughs> and America. <laughs> and America. All right. All right. What you got? I continue to be fascinated by the housing stuff so quick hit here from goldman sachs global investing research uh says that 99 percent of outstanding mortgages have interest rates below current interest uh values why can't i say this right but like the interest rate today is higher than 99 percent of mortgages that are out in the world today isn't that crazy i mean this goes off the charts we talked about last week where home affordability is basically as unaffordable as it has been in the last 50 years. And it's there's not great metrics before 50 years ago in the United States. I've seen a lot of buzz this week of people saying, yeah, well, but interest rates are like around 7%. Like that can't be bad. Remember the 80s and the 70s and the 80s when interest rates were 10 to 18%? It's a fair point, but home affordability is in another stratosphere than it was in the 70s and 80s yep. because the prices of homes were so much lower relative to income at that time that even though you're paying significantly more interest, it's still like somewhat achievable. Right now, I don't feel like it's achievable for no. anybody. No. 
It's and one thing I loved. So your point's great. One thing I loved about the the Twitter thread around this was that people were bragging in it. I got I got two point eight percent. Yeah, I got three point. It's like <laughs> that is what interest rates were. I mean, granted, <laughs> yes. In order in order to get that rate, you also like you had to have the right credit score. You know, whatever it was. But it was just like it's not as if you went out and negotiated. Like when interest rates were eight percent, but I got a two point seven percent. No, <laughs> interest rates, mortgage rates were two point seven percent. But yeah, no, I I agree, and it's the relationship between home prices and interest rates like are so fascinating during this period of time because there were there was this I'll call it like a sweet spot recently where home prices were coming up a lot, but interest rates were so far down that it like it it yep. from a from a historical affordability perspective it didn't matter like you remember when we you know we had that episode it was like episode four or something like that like back in our when i was buying my home mm-hmm. and i was like i think i'm buying at the height of the market which turned out not to be the height of the market and interest rates were so low that it just when i look at this chart i was like wow look at me i should go on this twitter thread and brag you know what I mean? You <laughs> but it was it was yeah. accidental. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and I mean, not entirely accidental. You no. you put some good thought in it, and we actually documented that on the podcast, which I think is fun. So my boy Connor Daughtry writes for the New York Times, based in uh, the Bay Area, uh, really focuses on housing market journalism. I'll call it. Like three weeks ago, had this awesome article where he followed someone in L.A. She was shopping for a house. She was out of luck, couldn't find anything that was even affordable or anything else. The twist is she already owned a house in Burbank and she had it at like a 2.8 interest rate. And he's going, well, like, why don't you sell that one to get increased your down payment to buy the other one? And she's like, no, have you seen that one rents? The cash flow is great. Like, why would I ever get rid of that? And he effectively contrasts, well, this is part of the problem. Like you have a person who happens to be landlord effectively and someone that's currently shopping for a home and they are they're seeing both sides of the market and this is why it's so difficult right now of course she if she was going to sell her other property she wasn't going to cut the price she she would have had to sell it for a premium for it to make dollar sense to her because otherwise she's just going to collect checks for the next 30 years in her opinion because she got a mortgage at such a great rate fully agreed and i also as an aside love when you say sense and it could be s-e-n-s-e or c-e-n-t-s i love it uh, another quick just hit for you diggles mm-hmm. another quick hit that's related is the visual capitalist put this uh, chart out around price changes over the last 23 years like since the year 2000 roughly of various goods and services and the high level of it is anything that you need to buy has gone up ridiculous prices over that 23 year period Mm -hmm. anything that you want to buy has gone down ridiculously over that period so a few examples hospital services over 200 percent up college tuition about 200 percent televisions down like 99 percent cell phone services down 50 percent Right. So those are just giving you a sense. If I if I'm just going to not even get percentages, but talk about everything that's um, highly above the zero percent line, housing, food and beverage, child care, medical care, college textbooks, college tuition and fees and hospital services. So it's all that stuff is up mattingly, Don Mattingly, if you're a Yankees <laughs> fan, 
the <laughs> everything that's uh, below the line is uh, new cars, household furnishings, uh, clothing, cell phone services, software, toys, and televisions. All the things that we want in life, the luxury goods, we have found a way as society to drive them down in price and such that we are, you know, uh, driving up volume. And then all the things that we need are like up so much. And when I think about what we talk about a lot on here, which is around the uh, inequities in wealth, right? All that stuff that's above is like the stuff that people need. And it's, mm -hmm. it is increasing at a price that like wages have not. Completely agreed. You know, my, if I was making a reckless prediction, which I, you know how much I dislike predictions. I think electronic vehicles are going to be closer to the trend line of TVs than historical internal combustion engine vehicles have been. And the reason for that speculation, sorry, I'm off on a tangent here, but is if you read about the manufacturing process, whether it's at Ford or Tesla or anywhere in between, and they talk about how many less moving parts and how many less parts uh, in particular are in a electronic vehicle, it's potentially a game changer. And then Ford had a, a breakdown with, I think their R&D staff where they were saying the ability to create new models because there's so much of like the core engine, but also like technology and wiring and stuff that can be transferred easily from model to model it's like a complete game changer in terms of it's plug and play in a way that the internal combustion engine never will be. And I expect that to continue to trend down. So you might get to the point, I think these are rough numbers, but I think a internal combustion engine might have like three to 4,000 individual parts. And I think an EV typically has like 1500, but that's been reduced. I think you could get to the point where you have like 500 ish parts mm -hmm. and then the cost of batteries go down as you reach economies of scale, that all those production things also go down. Um, that'd be a fun world to live in if the price of a really awesome car was like 10K. I don't know that we'll get there, but yeah. it'd be pretty cool. Love that point. Love that point. And I'm going to dig in actually for a very separate point. No transition. No transition comparison. There is there's this piece in VentureBeat about investment gpt oh boo so boo. it's basically saying yeah it's basically saying we have chat gpt we don't have investment gpt i yeah. texted this article to you and also said something like people don't know things <laughs> i read this and just went like people don't understand how anything works the reason i said that it, so there was a part i'm just going to name one part of this they were saying that investment gpt so some service that you use in order to like plug in stuff and it's able to invest is less likely than chat gpt because it can't be as good as analysts i read that and went usually when you say because it can't be as good as you're looking for something that you want to be as good as <laughs> like do <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like i went so it's possible like analysts aren't good I'm not saying that there yeah. aren't analysts that are good. I'm saying analysts as a group are not good. So investment GPT coming your way next month was like what I basically read that as. I don't really have a take on this. It's boring. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
it goes right, back next? to what was it two weeks ago we were talking about basically how chat gpt works i mean it's doing a really good job of trying to be a human and and replicating the way we process information humans aren't good investors so does that mean it's going to be a good investor i don't think so i think it could uh underperform the s&p 500 which 95 percent of the population could do so awesome good work <laughs> Good day, Cherryo, or whatever. <laughs> whatever they say. Exactly. What you got? I think we're back to you. I think my fishbowl's dry. Oh man, I got I got a couple more. James McIntosh uh, put out a, a an article here called Market Markets History 101. It's time to buy bonds. Right. We've hit on this a little bit, this point, this broad point. Where he's effectively saying a year ago, obviously don't buy bonds. Now maybe it's time to get back in. What I enjoyed about this, though, is more the market history 101 point. So he was saying there are a few things, if you go back in history, there are a few things that say this is like this period, that period, right? He talks about 1973, which we've discussed, right, in the 1970s, you know, getting high inflation because of the oil embargo time, stock market crash in 1973, 1974. Uh, he said 1980s, stock market crash, right? There's like, there are periods that you could say is analogous. To give some additional insight there, he put this graph on that showed the months that it took for stocks to return to their peak in real terms. Real terms meaning if you look at inflation, so take inflation off of what stock market returns were, how long did it take? And that after the 1973 crash, it took about 50 months to get back. So it's four plus years. 1980 crash took about 20 months, right? So a year and a half-ish. Uh, 1990 took about 10 months. 2000, the dot-com bubble, 2000, it took 80 months to get back to peak. Uh, 2007, it took almost 60 months, so about five years. In 2020, it took like six months, right? So I thought that was really interesting. And then he mentioned something we've hit on before. A cheap, not cheaper was was what this graph was entitled. Looks at forward price to earnings ratio. So based on what we think earnings are going to be, what is the PE ratio um, of the MSCI USA index? And it's about 18 roughly right now. And he's saying, so we got a lot cheaper than we were a year ago before everything crashed or not crashed. Everything went down yeah, in 2022. And he's saying, but if you look at this, relatively speaking, it's still in the index of like expensive times and his point there was that uh, over the long term stocks outperform bonds like historically stocks have outperformed bonds but if you buy stocks when they are expensive you have a lower percentage chance of getting like high returns over the future and so what does that mean that you do right now and if you go back a year ago uh, the reason you shouldn't buy bonds is because of where interest rates were. But now interest rates are like just normal, effectively, is what he's saying. And so therefore, like adding bonds to your portfolio um, to have some sort of a balance, I would say is not a wild idea. He's saying like it's probably time to do that. Uh, my boy James is a much better writer than me. I think he's smarter than me too. Shout out to James. I know you're listening. But what he said here, I'm going to write his article, Deagles. Diversification matters and valuation matters, right? Stocks are still probably on the expensive side and bonds aren't like crazy out of range. They're not like two sigma away from their historical norm. So 
pull back in some diversification and make it happen. I agree with that point. It's hard to come up with the like perfect formula of how much bonds you should add back in because there's still room to run potentially as we continue to fight inflation. Like I think the Fed's still talking about raising rates potentially three to four times this year. But you don't want all your eggs in the equities basket that's expensive. Now, I handle this by buying international equities and buying all my stocks based on valuation. But I think his point here is really solid. Yeah. And, and for me, because I don't, I don't play with bonds, I'm too cool for bonds uh, from a, a portfolio perspective. And by too cool, I mean, I just don't understand them. So I don't, I don't buy them um, perspective. But I do play with them when it comes to cash management now because of the conversations that we've had, which we talked about before. Right. But from a uh, portfolio perspective, I don't. But it's it is it's a time if you are looking at broadly like bond ETFs, right, not buying individual bonds, but like bond ETFs as a as a point to going more toward like a 60, 40 or whatever the portfolio balance you want. Like it's time to it's not it's no longer ridiculous at the very least to think about that. Yeah, Deagles, I would take issue with your statement there. First of all, I know you own some fixed income stuff, which is effectively bonds, but. <laughs> you should do this as a thought experiment, maybe not for your quantitative portfolio, but for something else. Even holding 10% of your portfolio in bonds is a really fun, it's a really fun learning experience because if the world truly blows up and say you have like an intermediate term treasury bond, while all your equities run the run down, your bonds, uh, the price of your bond holdings is gonna go up significantly. And it's like a really fun counterbalance to smooth out some of your returns. You should play with that. Nope. <laughs> nope. As no, the old saying goes, I don't need your nonsense. Okay. Uh, I'm going to hit on one more thing that you actually sent to me, and that's WeWork. How much money has WeWork raised? $22 billion. How much is WeWork worth right now? I think it's less than a billion. Is that right? Yeah. Do you know Adam Newman's net worth? No. It's like 1.2 billion. He currently is worth more than the company he created and, and talked people into writing checks for $22 billion for it. Then the messed up part is he's probably proud of it. I'd feel bad. I, I don't want to guess at his feelings. I would not be proud of it. Put it that way. Like I'd be extremely disappointed. If this I don't want to get. I don't want to guess at his feelings either. What I want to do is look at how he acts. He's starting yeah. another Ponzi scheme company. <laughs> he can't be like upset about this. Well, don't hate the player, hate the game, Diggles. I mean, is it his fault that people wrote him checks for twenty-two billion dollars? Yes. So I, I mean, <laughs> no, honestly, yes. <laughs> you know me. I love a uh, a dumpster fire. I I like. Anytime I see something that's down, whatever, 90 plus percent, I go, let me pull some financials and see if there's any juicy thing going on here. I was hoping that the total real estate holdings would be worth more than a billion bucks or something like that, right? I, I mean, this thing is just a dumpster fire from a quick glance at the financials too. Like it's got, it's going to be worth half a million bucks in three months. There's, there's no redeeming qualities. At least again, I did like a five minute pull of some financials I don't, I don't see anything investable or appealing here they just lose money and they seem to lose more money all the time <laughs> that's that's it. that's that's all i got that's all i got for that guy 
that's all I got for that guy. Um, I mean, capital markets are fascinating, though. How were, I mean, a lot of these investments were like the who's who of VC. And how were they that wrong? Well, I mean, they've been that wrong so many times. I don't know. But this wasn't even, the thing with WeWork was that wasn't even the height, during the height of what was happening. (laughs) Right? Uh, See, it's, uh, so... It's funny to hear you say that because when I see something like this, I just go, this is why I don't work in venture. And this is why I don't play the startup game necessarily. But you love the startup game. You've been part of the booms and busts and everything else. So I just assume your temperament goes, yeah, this happens sometimes. It's no big deal. But you seem frustrated at the inefficiency here. Um, It's more from like a social perspective. I think it's frustrating. From a professional perspective, I'm like, shoot, yeah, you know, don't hate the play, hate the game, as you said, right? Like, I'll play this game, I get the game, cool, like, it, it makes sense. But there are also times where I kind of get, you know, like, we've talked about my investment in Twilio. Mm-hmm. Is Twilio, by all accounts and measures, everything you can look at, like an overvalued institution right now, even though it's come down by like 80 plus percent? Yes, flat out, right? Yeah. And I'm like, but if if Twilio works, it can it can change so many things about how like, I'm not saying this is like an altruistic thing by any means. Actually, this is pure capitalism, what I'm investing in. But it's a communication organization, like changing the ease at which we can communicate. I'm like, cool, I get that. But you look at something like WeWork, you're like, how could this work? Like, like, like it, it's it. And if it does. It changes the way that luxury offices operate. Like, you know, like I, I well, it, it was always a sham. I mean, so, you know, Regis, the it's shared office space in almost all the same markets. It just doesn't have the cool branding and it's been around forever. And it, the look and feel is more like your yeah. traditional yes. office. At the height of WeWork, folks like Vitaly Katis Nelson were just saying, here's the same properties in the same places. And this one's worth a third of WeWork. I don't remember the exact multiples, but it was pretty obvious that there was a bill of goods being sold. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't play with Regis or Kathy Lee, to be honest, but you got jokes. That's just me. That's just me. That's just me. All right. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate you. It was fun playing around today. Please go rate and view the podcast and always skippydougals at gmail.com. Hit us up with that listener mail. Thank you. We'll catch you next week. 